<laughs> Great. Welcome, everybody. Um, I'm really so, so excited to get ready for Shavuot with you all by learning the Azharot this evening. Um, before we start our learning, I want to take a moment to dedicate our class this evening um, to the memory of my uncle, um, Alan Cohen, um, Abraham Ben Simcha. Um, he passed away two years ago um, on Rosh Chodesh Sivan. Um, so this is uh, our second uh, second year remembering him. And I, I just, before we jump into the sources, um, I just want to share that um, I have so many memories um, of my uncle Alan singing the Azharot together, gathering together on Shavuot afternoon. Um, I know some family members are on the call as well, and we would gather together. Um, he loved music. Um, he loved the traditional melodies that we used on different holidays and different occasions, including the Azharot. Um, and I have so many memories also of just studying Torah with him, um, that he loved the words of the Torah, and he loved to study those words with me. Um, so I'm, I'm dedicating this class um, in his memory, and may his neshama have an alayah. So people on this call, some of you might be very, very familiar with the Azharot and have practiced this custom, and this might be a brand new idea for some of you. Um, before we jump in, um, I just want to get, and please use the chat, and you can feel free also uh, to raise your hand, and uh, I'll help unmute you. Um, can anyone tell me how many mitzvot we have, that we have from the Torah? Don't be, don't be shy. 613. Okay, how do we know that we have 613 besides the number of seeds in a pomegranate? Torah Okay, say more. Gershon, yeah? It's 611 plus 2. 611 plus 2. Thank you. So we're going to look at that inside. As Gershon shared with us, there's a number of ways. I'm just going to meet you again. Um, there are a number of ways that the rabbis figured out. I see somebody said the Rambam. We're going to go back way, way, way pre-Rambam. We're going to sort of bridge the gap. A lot of what we're doing tonight um, is thinking that before the Rambam came on the scene, how did people think of the mitzvot? How did they count, enumerate the mitzvot? And like, how did they keep track of them? Um, and the Azharot we're going to look at are a primary way that many communities bridging the gap from the Talmud to the Rambam and continuing as we see till today past the Rambam that communities kept track of all of the mitzvot um, in a very dear and beloved way. So I'm going to share my screen and you also have the sources there um, but don't be shy to use the chat. Um, so as Gershon thank you for preceding this um, this Mishnah so we'll just learn it inside this is at the end of Makot um, some say this is at the end of Makot because Makot is for punishments. And like after dealing with so many punishments, right, that we can get in trouble by not doing the mitzvot, the rabbis say, oh, actually, the mitzvot are actually good things. It's not just things that get you in trouble, right? That like if you don't do them, you get a slap on the wrist or, um, but actually mitzvot are amazing. They're wonderful opportunities to do the right thing in the world. Um, and so Rabbi Simlai famously said, shesh me'ot mitzvot Right? There were 613 mitzvot taught to Moshe. We understand this. We're going to see some controversy about this. To be biblical or de'oraita level mitzvot are 613. Um, there are 365 negative mitzvot, meaning lo ta'aseh, don't do this. 
corresponding to the number of days in the year. Meaning every day you say, don't do this. But every day of the year, you have to remember not to do these things, perhaps. right? Um, they don't all apply all 365 days. And 248 positive mitzvot, I say, things to do. Um, those correspond to the number of um, not bones per se, but parts of a man's body, 248, right? So the world and us are all connected with the number of mitzvot, right? It's a beautiful way. It's another way of remembering it. So then Hamnuna said, uh, how do we know this? Micra, like where do we learn this from? Where does the 613 come from? And as Gershon said, Torah siva lanu Moshe, Morasha, right? So Torah, the gematria, sheet me'avichadzer, so Torah, the gematria, the numerical value of Torah is 611, right? 200, 400, 200, 6, and 5. And we're still missing two. Where do the other two come from? And they say, no, Anochi, the first two commandments are from God, from the Giburah. They heard them directly from God. And then they said, Moshe, this is enough. This is too much from us. We can't do it anymore. So that's how we get the 613 it's sort of taken for granted. Um, can we zoom in more? Sure, I'm happy to zoom in more. Thank you for that feedback. Is that better? Yeah. Great, thank you. So there's not a lot of controversy about this number 613. Okay, the Zohar Harakia, who we will look at more in detail, um, goes through and says, there is right, um, a large consensus that this is the appropriate number for the mitzvah, right? To enumerate the mitzvot. And there's no doubt. Everybody agrees the number is 613 in the Talmud, in the Midrashim. And the Geonim, which are the um, bridge builders from the period of the Talmud to the period of the Rishonim, who we happen to know, right? Rashi, Rambam, Ramban, we know them a lot better. The Geonim, we're going to get to know a little bit tonight if you're not so familiar with them. Um, they held this number to be fundamental, this idea of 613. And we're going to see also listing out what these 613 are. And the poets relied on them and composed shirot upiotim, songs and liturgical poems. And it became a minhag to read them on Shavuot in the Beit Knesset. So that every, and nobody expressed any doubt about this custom. The reason he's saying this, we're going to see, is the Rambam was not such a fan of this custom for a variety of reasons. Um, but we're going to first establish the custom before we get to the Rambam. So the origin of the practice from the time of the Geonim. Um, the first listing that, uh, the full listing that we have of the 613 mitzvot, was by Rav Shimon Kaya. He was an 8th century Babylonian. Um, and he's mostly known by the name of the work, which is right the Baal Halachot Gedolot. He wrote all of the Halachot together. Um, and he tried to write out what are the list? What are these 613, 248 positive and 365 negative? So we see already that there is a real interest in systematizing Right? Even though Jews are living their lives um, and practicing halacha, like, let's list and enumerate what are these mitzvot. And in fact, it's only in the 8th century that we have right, this list, which is a few hundred years after the closing of the Talmud. 
Um, it follows the rulings of the Talmud and it organizes them systematically. Um, all of the early Azharot we're gonna see, most of the Azharot were based on the enumeration of the Baal Halachot Gedolot. And we're gonna see there were some uh, perhaps issues with that. Um, the first example of Azharot um, that are still, uh, that are mentioned is, um, is a work called Atatinchalta, which means you granted uh, a nachala is an inheritance. The Torah is our inheritance. Um, it's the earliest known composition of Asherot, and it also follows the enumeration of the Baha. The Baha. Its authorship, right, this is quite um, mythical, it's ascribed to Eliyahu Hazaken, um, the brother-in-law of Rav Haigaon, but it's often, right, that's right, a real person, um, but it's often attributed to maybe, like, who's Eliyahu Hazaken? There's some involvement of Eliyahu Hatashvi, Eliyahu Hanavi, in composing this poem. Um, it sometimes says the rabbis of the academy, right, in the subtitle. Um, this work, Atahin Chalta, was the first one, and there were many, many Asherot written. Asherot meaning these compositions of liturgical poems based on listing out the 613 mitzvot, like positive and negative. There's going to be different ways of organizing the fantasy. Many, many were written during that time. Um, we do not have most of the ones uh, written back. Um, Rav Natronaigaon in the ninth century Babylonia talks about how established this practice was already. It says, Nahagu Our practice is to read the Azharot, the 613 mitzvot, in front of the congregation and public who have gathered to hear it. There were simple folk who requested that Azarot be said for them. So they would hear all 613 commandments in an organized way. That they should feel like they're receiving not just the 10 commandments. We're going to think about that idea in a moment, right? What this practice is all about. But they're going to feel like they received the entire Torah on Shavuot just like the entire Torah was received um, in order, whatever that means, in some order, these kruotam, and they'll remember it. Why? We're going to talk a lot about this. It was a poem. It was written in very poetic ways, and we're going to see ways that um, encourage people to remember it. By hearing it once a year, and by doing it in this poetic form and saying it out loud, even though it's only once a year, people will remember them and it'll be inscribed and set in their hearts and in their mouths. That at least once a year, everybody will hear the entire 613 mitzvah. Now, again, we have to remember that um, this is, first of all, before the Rambam, having the Sefer HaMitzvah, which we're gonna talk about, um, and before most people, right, there was not a printing press. Most people were not literate. Um, how would people know what the actual, right, the list of the 613 mitzvot are? So the Azharot was a beautiful, but also very useful custom that came into place um, to remind people of them. And I think many of us, um, perhaps if you've had the experience of, I think, um, High Holidays and Yim is a great example of this, that there might be things that we say really just once a year. You might say it once a year, but you say it once a year, every year, 
it becomes like Sidogapi, it becomes really like something that you know. And once you hear it and everybody's saying it, you sort of get into it and you remember it. And so all year they will have it um, and remember it. Um, Rav Sa'ad Yaga'on in the 10th century uh, Babylonia in his Achot Yom Tov talks about this practice. And he says, I've seen so in our current generation, again, this is in the synagogue, this practice, um, that at Musaf, they would say um, kind of the essence of the 613 commandments that God commanded the children of Israel in this Atta in this poem that we saw of Rav, um, like the early, um, it should be noted that Rav Sa'adya Gaon wrote his own Azharot. Um, there's a link um, if people want to see for a moment. Here's an example of um, Rav Sa'ad Yagon's um, Azharot. This is an introduction um, that was written probably after the Azharot were actually written. Um, and you can see it's in alphabetical order. It starts with Anochi, and it goes in alphabet order, which also makes things easier to remember. I think of Ashrei, things that are in alphabetical order, um, you sort of, even if you don't remember the next line, you can sort of anticipate, all right, I remember what letter is next, and then I'm going to try to remember what's next, right? So the alphabetical order really helps people remember it, and many of them were in alphabetical order. Uh, what's interesting about the way that Rav Sa'adion organized it also, um, he had his own system, um, but one of the azharot that he, that he made, that he composed, was a system that he had that the entire 613 mitzvot are like sort of come out of the Aseret Hadibot, out of the 10 commandments, right? which is an idea that, um, that exists. Um, many of us are probably familiar with the idea of reading the 10 commandments from the Torah. So Rav Sa'adigon sort of bridged that custom of the 10 commandments that actually were received on Sinai, and then bridging from those 10 commandments, right, how the the rest of the 601 commandments, 603 commandments um, emanate from that. So that was a system um, that, that he established. Um, it is very, very artistic. Um, we're gonna see there's a lot of skill and beauty and thought put into many of these poems. Um, as you see with Rav of Sa'ad Yigaon, um, it's not only that he was a great um, master of halakha and a great leader, um, but he really put a lot of effort into making this poem um, something that um, people could remember and find beauty in. Um, in terms of the name Azharot, right? Why are they called Azharot? It is sort of a, right? Azharot literally means, what does Azharot mean? Warnings. Warnings, correct. It means warnings. So there's an idea, um, especially for the negative commandments, Right, that you must like warn somebody if you're going to hold somebody accountable. Um, you sort of have to warn them, um, and they can't receive a punishment unless you warn them. So it's a little bit right. You have that reverence and fear of Harsinai when you hear the name Azharot. It, it engenders that sort of like really, um, you know, like oh, these are like very, you know, God came and gave us His commandments, and there's a lot of awe. Um, and I think that when we read in synagogue, when we read the Ten Commandments. Um, and a lot of the liturgical poems that I've experienced also in um, Ashkenazi synagogues sort of try to get to that place of awe, um, right? that awe and reverence for that moment of revelation. 
Um, but we're going to see with the Asherot that it doesn't only have that reverence of the worth of God, um, but that actually has a lot of sweetness and beauty to it. It resonates with the word Zohar. It does. It? What do you make of that? I don't, I'd never thought of it before. It's just, it's just amazing. <laughs> well, okay. So perhaps that's why um, we're going to talk about the Zohar Harakiah um, again in a few moments, right? That could be one of the reasons why, right? The Zohar Harakiah um, was called that book that was uh, a commentary and attempting to resuscitate or like uh, protect uh, the Azharot from the Rambam. Um, now resuscitate because it, it was an ongoing custom. Um, so this, uh, this explanation is from Rav David Bitton. Um, Rav David Bitton, uh, the rabbi um, in uh, the Syrian community, um, he wrote a book, um, which I luckily borrowed. <laughs> it's very hard to find in print. Um, he, he passed away in 1979. I think he passed away young. He didn't get to uh, publish the entire book, um, but he wrote a book called Ta'am Vida'at, that he Wait, wants to give. Tell us, could you tell us, do Ashkenazim follow the Azarot, or is it basically a Sephardi minhag? Okay, so we're going to maybe pull the crowd. But for the most part, my understanding is no. <laughs> no, Ashkenazim yeah, don't. So my understanding is we'll talk more about the custom. I want to lay the groundwork. Um, and I'm really interested to hear people's personal customs. Um, you know, it started from the Geonim. So just for a little bit, I'll just stop sharing the screen for a second just for a little bit of uh, background, just so we're all on the same page, right? The Geonim in the 8th, 9th, and 10th century, um, that sort of precedes most of the split of the Ashkenazi community, um, going to Italy, going to France, um, going to Germany. Um, so um, they brought many of the Geonic customs, um, many of the Geonic, I appreciate the questions. Don't worry, I won't answer them if I think the truth. I'm good. <laughs> I appreciate the questions. Um, they were all we're all here to learn, and you I think this is actually very important. Us. Yeah, there were. It's very important. You yourself are Sephardi, right? I'm sorry. I take it that you yourself are Sephardi, right? Correct. Yeah. Um. So this custom predates the split between right. I mean, Jews lived in Middle Eastern lands uh, that predates the split and development of Ashkenazi Jewry. Um, it seems to be that perhaps they brought the custom of Azharot with them, um, but that for the most part, that custom fell away. Um, and we'll talk about more about the Sephardi practice, but my understanding is the Ashkenazim, the idea of Akhtamot, which again is about that moment, that awe and reverence of setting the scene at Hartinai, is the primary sort of liturgical poem that is read um, and, and not necessarily these enumerations of, uh, of the mitzvah. So I'm going to share my screen again. So Rav David Bitton in his book, Ta'am Vedat, which he says, I'm going to use the Azharot and I'm going to give you some background, um, a taste and an understanding, right? Both like uh, a nice feeling, a beautiful feeling for each mitzvah and also some of the like scholarship um, behind each mitzvah in the Azharot. Um, and he wrote this commentary. In his introduction, he says, why are they called Azharot? So we're gonna see some uh, gematria here as well. And he says, there are some who explain um, the name Azharot, again, based on numerical value. If you take the word Azharot and you take off the Vav, you get 613, right? Mm -hmm. And if you write a Chaser, 
right, without the vowel. Parallel to the 613 weeks which is a nice plan world. So it parallels. Um, he says that it seems for the most part, the Azharat instructs regarding the warnings and punishments, right? That just reminds us um, we were given on, on Shavuot is when we accepted these. I mean, these are binding obligations that we are now responsible for. And there are many midrashim about Har Sinai and that moment of of, of accepting this as a binding obligation. And hence they're called Azharat. Like we're teaching it to you once a year. So remember, you need to do it. Um, and others think um, they're named after the original, uh, an early Azharot, um, which began with the words, um, Azharot Reshit Lamcha Natata, right? That you first right, gave these warnings um, to your people. Um, so there's a bunch of different reasons for the name aspect. So we've gone through a little bit um, about the general uh, history and practice of the Azharot. Um, we're now going to think about the most famous Asherot. Uh, but before we can delve into the Asherot themselves, um, we're going to have to learn a little bit about the figure of Shlomo ibn Gabiro. Um, I must say that I grew up with the Asherot and I had heard a lot about Shlomo ibn Gabiro. I think even like in high school, I can put on like some, you know, big program about the golden age of Spain. And I wrote about Rashul Ibn Gabirol. There's so little known about him. And for sure, what I heard about him, um, right, in my high school in Yeshiva or learning the Azharot was really not what Shlomo Ibn Gabirol was. Um, and so I, I think it's important just to share like the complicated person um, and sort of the tortured genius that Ibn Gabirol was. Um, because a lot of his poems are just so beautiful, um, so um, pure and just their yearning um, and that thinking of like who he was and what his life was like and sort of what the significance of, um, of his work was. Um, and trying to hold all that is somewhat complicated. So who was Shlomo Ibn Gabiro? Um, he had a very short life, as you see. Uh, he was born around 1021, perhaps. Um, and died around 1058 in Spain, right? So did not live for a very long time, but accomplished, right? Composed a huge amount, um, very prolific writer. He was a Neoplatonic philosopher and poet in Muslim Spain. Um, some called him uh, the Jewish Plato. Um, and he wrote some philosophical works. Uh, the most famous is called um, Fons Vitae or the Fountain of Life. Um, in fact, he wrote it. Um, he wrote it in Arabic, um, and because Greek philosophy, and this is how the Rambam knew Greek philosophy, had been translated into Arabic and spread throughout Muslim Spain and the Muslim lands, people actually, for many centuries, like others that were not in the Jewish community, did not know that it was uh, a Jewish philosopher that wrote this book. Um, they thought it was a Muslim philosopher because he really doesn't mention any Torah ideas in this book at all. Um, it's really just focused on philosophy. Um, and perhaps that was some of the, we're going to see some negative reactions that he got. Perhaps that was one reason why he got some, uh, some pushback. Um, he wrote an ethical treatise based on the different humors of the body um, and how one should act using psychology, which were very forward thinking. Um, and really how we, how we know him very much in the, in the Jewish community um, is composing liturgical poems. Um, he wrote many rishuyot. Um, a rishut is a poem, think of like, things that we say often on the high holidays. Um, 
it's a liturgical poem before um, a major part of tefillah, either nishmat, um, right, like the yotzrit that we say before the blessings of Shema. Um, and they really, they resonant with many verses from the Torah um, and get a person inspired and moved so that when they get to that point in the tefillah, they really feel like ready for that. Um, perhaps one of his most famous, besides the Azharot, liturgical poems that was said in synagogues um, is called the Keter Bachut, um, the um, crown in glory, um, or the crown uh, of, of uh, sovereignty, um, which was said on Yom Kippur in many, many, many communities. Um, it's quite a long um, liturgical poem, but it was said in many communities um, to have people think of like, what's the purpose of um, how to be repentant and how to approach God. Um, so he was very well known for that. He also wrote a lot of secular poetry, which we're going to see was um, much of it was not available for many centuries. But, but he, he lived in very quickly caught on to the ear of the regular people and also to the scholars um, and the um, poets and those who were like in the court life in Muslim Spain um, really were attracted to, to I mean, he, he was a, a, a shining star in terms of uh, we're going to see not necessarily his personality, but in terms of what he wrote. Um, but he was a complicated person. Um, the tradition is that he wrote the Azharot at the age of 16. When you see the Azharot, you're going to like be shocked that he wrote it at 16. He actually wrote two Azharot. He wrote an early one at age 16 that were more based on the type that Sa'ad Yaga'an wrote um, in an older um, poetic style. Um, We'll talk about. Um, and then he wrote another one, perhaps that, you know, 18, a little bit more mature. Um, there is some, um, there's a, a tall tale, I guess, that uh, Rav David Biton shares in his Ta'an Vidad, which he says, like, take it or leave it. Um, unclear, you know, how we understand this story, because um, we're going to see the life that Ibn Gabriel had. But there's a Yemenite story that perhaps when he was 18 years old, he was studying with a rabbi, um, he actually learned mostly from his father, but he was studying with the rabbi. And the rabbi had a beautiful daughter, a very wise daughter, and said, whoever like comes up with pre Hadash, a wonderful new idea and something new, innovation, um, will win my, you know, my daughter's hand. And the tradition that the story says um, is that Ibn Gabirol, like spent a couple of, you know, very quickly, like wrote down the Atharot, uh, lots of different pieces of paper, and like strung them all around the Beit Midrash and through the windows, and that when they came in, like they saw them, um, but I said, oh, I know this handwriting. That's Ibn Gabirol, and announced right that Friday night, Ibn Gabirol, my daughter, are engaged. No, this is not necessarily a historical story, but it gives you a sense of, right, how, um, first of all, how we like to tell these stories about people, um, number one, but also just the genius, right? What well, might've inspired the beauty, because we're gonna see there's so much love and beauty in it. So what inspired him to write it? Um, here's a little bit about Ibn Gandhi Earl's life, and then we're going to jump into the um, jump into the Asherot themselves and study them together. Um, this is from Peter Cole. If people are not familiar with Peter Cole, um, he is a professor um, of poetry. I highly recommend any of his translations and works um, on the poets of, uh, of Spain. Um, Ibn Gandhi Earl, um, Shmuel Nagid. Um, and he writes a background to, uh, he has a certain style of writing also, so that'll come, come forward. Um, 
So Ibn Gabirol was also known in Arabic as Abu Ayyub Suleiman Ibn Yahya Ibn Yabirol. Um, and so he was often called that. Um, he says the reconstructed facts are few. He's born Shlomo ben Yehudai ben Gabirol in Malaga to an undistinguished family that maybe fled the Umayyad Caliphate, Cordoba, with the same wave of refugees that includes Shmuel Hanabi, um, right, who would become the period's first great Hebrew poet. Meaning this was an era, again, the golden age of Spain, of a rise of masterful Hebrew language poetry in the community. They moved to Saragossa um, and Ibn Gabirol, uh, he's known in Arabic circles as Abu Ayyub, uh, which literally means the son of Job. We're gonna see that Job, unfortunately, is a, is a he, he maybe um, felt a lot of connection with the biblical character of Job. Um, we're gonna see he had many misfortunes and suffering in his life. Um, so he's raised in the center of Islamic and Jewish learning. He's very precocious um, and his father dies. So he's looked after um, a Jewish noble. And by the age of 16, he's writing very important, right, accomplished poems and important poems. He's afflicted with a disease that will leave him embittered and in constant pain, suffering from boils that scholars reason were caused by tuberculosis of the skin. So we don't know exactly what he had, but it was clearly something very painful and really, really like something that he just lived with. Um, we can also infer from his poems that he was short and ugly. Um, his patron dies, right? With this, we see some of the court intrigue in the background um, of Margaret Fame and how the nobles of Jewish community lived. And perhaps he goes to Granada to try to be with uh, Hanagid. Again, things work out for a little while, but then wires get crossed, um, right? Perhaps he says something offensive. Maybe there's jealousy, unclear, um, but still in his mid-20s, he's now left again on his own. Um, Ibn Ezra writes of him um, that he was known for, of Ibn Gabirol, his angry spirit, which held sway over reason, and his demon within, which he could not control. Right? So he, as, as precise um, and careful and beautiful as his poetry was, um, you can see that in his personal life, right, much more challenging. Um, so he writes secular verse, um, often gnawed with ambition and anger, and it's probable that later in life he's supported by his writing for the synagogue, composing radical um, and remarkably self-deprecating poutine or liturgical poems for Shabbat and festival services. Okay. Um, and here is that, right, some of the other things um, that he wrote. Um, arrogant and orphaned uh, and itinerant, right? Uh, says, um, he dies as Ibn Ezra in Valencia, not yet 40. Um, and so his religious poems, which we're gonna get tonight are very well known. Um, there's a very fascinating story in Peter Cole's works about how we got many of the secular poems. I'll leave that for people for another time. Um, okay. So now we got a little bit of a sense of coming up to 11th century Spain, how did people experience Shavuot? Now, I think it's really, I have to stress this um, just because I think it gives us a sense of like where this was coming from, but also the significance of this practice. So this was pre-Rambam, this was pre-Maimonides. So there was not a list of the Sefer HaMitzvot in the same way that was so right today. 
um, that maybe lay people had besides the SRI. This was also pre-Kabbalists. People were not staying up all night on Shavuot learning, right? I think we have to remember that that practice is a mere 500 years old, if that. Um, and that's not something that people were doing on Shavuot. So how were people, regular everyday people, experiencing on Shavuot, the idea of receiving the Torah? Um, Shavuot is one of those holidays which there's not a lot of commandments. There's not a lot that we actually do. Um, and the Torah is something that we do all of the time. But so what is it that we do on Shavuot sort of instill in us um, the grandeur of or the beauty or the love um, that we have for Torah? Um, I think many of us experience that today through learning um, Torah um, at a tikkun. Um, but clearly that was not a practice that was existing. Um, we're going to look at the Azharot, but it's important to know that right, Ibn Gamirals were the most famous, and we saw in some of the sources before that they quickly gained a lot of popularity um, all over the Middle East, um, in the Sparta countries as well. Um, people started saying the Azharot, um, and people loved them. They loved his poems. They became very, very popular. Um, Ibn Ezra was, came soon after, right? It was not a fan. Why was he not a fan? And we'll see the Rambam for the same reason. Um, Ibn Gabirol knew a lot of uh, biblical verse. He clearly knows a lot of uh, Chazal, a lot of what the sages said. He's not a halakha master. Ibn Gabirol is not somebody that he did not write works of halakha. He's not a like somebody that we learned halakha from. And yet he wrote the most popular work that a regular everyday people are learning the mitzvot from. Right? But he's a poet, not necessarily right, um, a traditional scholar. Um, the Rambam, we're gonna see also had his own issues. Um, so the Rambam who comes soon after, and this also helps shed light on why the Rambam uh, decided to write his Six hundred his uh, separate hamitzvot. Um, besides organizing the mitzvot, why did he find it important to list the mitzvot? And he says, "I've heard. Right, I'm going to read just in the translation for the sake of time. Many asharot that are composed here in the land of Spain, I have heard of. They seize me with pains. Upon seeing the fame of this matter and its spread, right? This is just a century, right? Soon after Gabirol, already this is so widespread by the time of the Rambam. It caught on like, right? People loved it. And even though they're not to be blamed, can't blame them. Why? Because their authors were poets and not rabbis. Right? They're learning to rock on poets. And from the angle of their craft, they did that. They're very sweet and they're beautiful. These are beautiful poems. But what is the Rambam's problem? So this goes back to where we said the first enumeration was the Bahag. And without getting too lost in the weeds, right? The Rambam had a lot of problems with that original listing. The Rambam did not think it was the correct listing. And he saw it his job to correct it and to make sure that people would know what was correct. Says, when I reflected on this and realized the fame of the matter among the masses, I knew that if I mentioned the true count, um, people will say, no, the Rambam is making a mistake. That's not what we know. We know from the Azharot. 
We know the true count. We know the true list. Um, right? He'll see it's different than what they sing every year on Shavuot. So therefore, he saw, right, so much is the case for the masses. He says, not only scholars, but right, not only regular people, but maybe scholars. So I saw fit too, before I put together my, right, Mishneh Torah, I'm going to mention an essay and before I list them, and I'm going to explain the list of the commandments and also a whole organized system, right, about how I came up with um, right? um, And he says that um, everyone knows the 613 and everybody knows the 365 and the 248. And this was not fumbled by anyone who counted the commandments, meaning everybody knows this is the number you end up with. Um, but what were people confused about? What the mitzvot are, what to list as a biblical mitzvah or what to list in this list. Um, and that is what he's going to correct. Um, the Zohar Harakia, um, which actually people can find on, um, on Sepharia, um, in Hebrew, and there was an English edition by Philip Kaplan. So this is by Roshlomo Ben Semachteran, the Rashbet, who also wrote the Tashbet, um, who came and tried to um, have the um, have the Azerot be something that, since everybody's reading it, everybody loves it. This is now a few centuries after the Rambam, but now we have the Rambam. How can we reconcile the two? And so he works very hard to try to rectify any issues that the Ramba might have had with Ibn Gabriel. Um, we're gonna see some of the main, um, main issues in the listing were um, the Bahag included some rabbinic mitzvot, for example, lighting Shabbat candles, lighting Hanukkah candles. Um, um, so those are, um, those are listed in the Bahag and we're gonna see Ibn Gabriel list them um, as well. And so the Rambam wanted to be very clear about his principles and what he listed. So a lot of ink has been spilled on that, um, but it's a really fascinating um, tension that we see here between um, you have this master poet who basically builds on this custom in the most now famous and popular way that spreads like wildfire. Now everybody knows the 630 commandments who didn't know them before, before Ibn Gummy Roll. They love it and they're singing it every year. And the Rambam, although it's like, on the one hand, people love it. Now everybody's learning it. It's like they're learning the wrong thing. And he like can't abide that they're learning the wrong thing and like has to fix it. Um, that being said, um, we're going to look at the unchanged, right? We read them as they are um, because the mitzvot are the mitzvot. And whether something was biblical or rabbinic, right? these are mitzvot that we have. Um, and that's the way that uh, Ibn Gabriel listed them. And the poem has remained that way. Um, a little bit about the poetic construction. Um, so as we saw with um, Sa'adiga on, that it was often um, using acrostics, um, right? The Aleph-Bet structure. Um, they also had something called Shushur, which is like a chain, which is you end one section, like let's say letter Aleph, you end with the word uh, Bach, right? In you, then you start Bet with Bach. It's also like not only a really beautiful poetic device, but it's a really good um, mnemonic device. Um, it's a really good mnemonic device to help you remember it. Um, what's fascinating about Ibn Gabriel is uh, there's actually, um, it, it helps you memorize it because of the rhyme structure. 
but it's not in alphabetical order. It's not in, um, in like we'll see that lots of different commandments are sort of mixed up together, um, right? Um, so he, he had a very different idea. Um, he really was focused on this beautiful poetic structure. Um, and so it's not the order that they're given the Torah and not a logical order like others, the Bahag and Sa'adiga on have listed before. Um, so we're gonna look at some examples, right? And some exceptions. Um, so the commandments are placed out of context. Some are repeated. Sometimes it'll be mentioned in a general way and then he'll mention something more specific about it. Um, and we're gonna look at the rhyme scheme in a minute, um, but it's like couplets with four stanzas um, that the first three rhyme with each other and then uh, the four rhymes with the next one. Um, this is a scan from Tan Vidat. This is a manuscript of Ibn Gabirol's Azharot. Um, so you can see the old handwriting um, that they had at that time. This is from soon after from um, Ibn Tibon who wrote a commentary um, on Ibn Gabirol. Um, Poetic license, yes. This is all about poetic license, but you can see the Rambam being a systematic, right? Who felt like even the Talmud and the Mishnah and the Talmud weren't organized enough and he needed to come and write because they're not, <laughs> right? And the Rambam needed to come and say, I have to put order here and a system and we need to know a system of doing things. I'm like that is really not what Ibn Gabirol is doing here. It's, but it is intellectual. What's beauty is it's poetic um, and intellectual as well. Um, right, yeah, the writing, uh, I'm not an expert in writing. I know they wrote Judeo-Arabic at the time as well. Um, so the letters do look a little bit different um, than we're used to seeing um, today. Um, I do see one question about the list differing without getting into, I'm gonna share the Asarot in a second and then we're gonna sing some of them. Um, I'll sing some of them and explain some of them as we go through. Um, but um, in short, um, right, the Rambam was the one who, who redid the listing against the Bahag. Um, the Ramban Nachmanides then came and tried to um, resuscitate the Bahag and sort of argue against um, the Rambam. The Rambams has been for the most part, right, um, accepted in some ways, um, but we still have these Asherot and we still have other, other things that are based on, um, on the Bahag. Um, I'm gonna share the Azharot in a second. I just wanna say the Azharot, I saw some of my family members holding this up as well. Um, I just wanna mention this is uh, clearly the Azharot have been around, right? Even Shlomo and Gabriel have been around right, for over a thousand years. Um, this is a more recent in the past, like 15, 20 years um, collection of the Azharot, the same text. Um, but what's wonderful about this is it's written out in a very clear way. Um, it has an English translation to it, um, and it has annotations in both Hebrew um, and English. Um, I just want to point out the English translation and the annotations um, are from my community rabbi, Rabbi Ezra Labaton, um, who uh, uh, passed away um, almost 10 years ago. So may his Nishma uh, and Aliyah to us learning um, his works. Um, so I'm going to share first the first stanza. Um, you don't have this in the sheets. Um, this is published by, I'm glad you asked me that because I wanted to make sure to mention it. Um, it's published by the Sephardic Heritage Foundation, um, which uh, if people want more about that, um, I can share more. Um, but um, I, I think it can be bought in most Jewish bookstores. It can be ordered online. Um, but the Sephardic Heritage Foundation has tried to um, make 
uh, traditions, uh, this is particularly for the Syrian Jewish community, um, which I'm a part of, um, to make these customs that people have been doing for many generations, uh, make them easier to understand and pass on, make them more accessible um, and make them more available to an even wider audience and new printings, easier to read printings uh, and translation. Um, so it's a beautiful, beautiful effort. Um, yeah, you can find them. Thank you, Monique, on uh, So we're gonna look at the first stanza. Um, so there's usually a reshoot, uh, a poem that was written um, that is read before. Um, and just I want to set the scene. Um, so the Azharot are divided into positive and negative commandments. Um, the custom as I know it, and I would really encourage if people have a custom about it, to share it, um, to share it in the, in the chat, um, is that this is not a, a custom. We mentioned that it had, was done in Musa. But I think, and Rav David Bitton mentions this um, in his book as well, um, that actually, like, it's a little bit long, right? Think of Akhtimoto a little bit long, right? It's a little bit long. It's all of the mitzvot. Um, and people maybe don't have a lot of patience to sit on Shavuot in synagogue for this. And so it sort of moved to the home. Um, so if you imagine on like a Shavuot, on Shavuot afternoon, actually a community member from Israel just told me he's finding that like doing it in one day is a challenge. So I'm gonna mention the diaspora custom, um, which is what I'm used to, and it makes it a little easier, um, is that we would gather together as a family. And um, thank God I have my grandfather here um, on the call, my grandmother, and some other family members who um, we do this together with and who uh, instilled this custom in me. Um, God willing, we'll do it together this year. Um, so at some point in the afternoon after lunch, everybody had a chance to rest a little bit. Um, so it was long days of Shavuot. Um, we gathered together. It was usually dessert. There was particular sweets that would people put out. It's a very big tradition of both dairy, uh, for a lot of reasons, on Shavuot, and also sweet things of the sweetness of uh, the Torah. Um, right, Simchat Torah being much later, right, Shavuot really has that sweetness. So they're very specific desserts that people would put out. There's some like biblical connections to some of those desserts. And so you sit at a beautiful table of sweets, you have a family coming around um, and you sing these together. So on the first day we would sing the positive commandments and on the second day sing the negative commandments. Um, the book of Ruth also traditionally, um, this, this um, volume has that as well, that the first two chapters of the book of Ruth are sung the first day after the episode and the second two chapters um, are read the second day. Um, wait, it's not going to be, I think, in the Ashkenazi um, Sidor. It's not a custom um, that was, uh, I think, it was a custom that was either not spread or lost in the Ashkenazi community. Um, but hopefully a custom, I've taught this in many Ashkenazi communities on Shavuot, um, hopefully a custom that will, um, that will re be reignited. Um, it's a beautiful custom. So these are the um, positive commandments. And as people can see, I'm gonna zoom in a little bit. Um, so you see like the first stanza here, the first couplet. So this all rhymes with each other, right? The first three parts rhyme, right? So it's, I'll just sing it a little bit and then I'll explain a little bit, okay. 
So that's the first stanza. And as you can see, you really, it helps you write the beautiful rhyme and how brilliant he was. They're not only putting in 613 mitzvot in an organized way, we're gonna see a lot of references to um, biblical verses and chazal, but also being able to rhyme in this way, like ma'aneh, ne'aneh, umineh, right? And then um, these two rhyme at Hayashamim and Imharim. Um, if you look even more carefully at the first two lines, um, you'll see one acrostic. Remember that it's not alphabetical. Many, many writers of poems, and especially liturgical poems, put their names at the beginning of the poem. So if you look at the beginning, you'll see Shin, right? Shemor, Shin, Lamed, Mem, Hey, Shilomo, Ben, Yehuda. So in that first line, Right. With the poem and the rhyme scheme, um, right? He also put his name Shalom Ben Yehuda um, in that first line, and that's like um, we're going to see a lot of treasures that are buried. I think one of the most incredible things about the Asherot Rambam, notwithstanding, um, is that he's a brilliant scholar. He clearly knows the Torah very well. Um, he knows Jewish practice very well, um, but also like there's many gems for both scholars and lay people alike to enjoy in them. Um, right, and he mentions the 200, 365, and 248. And even though the name is Hasarot, he says, I want this to be sweet. And if we think about the custom of eating sweet things on Shavuot, and the idea, right, of the Cheskel, eating the scroll and it being sweet, says, above all, I don't want this to be something that feels heavy and burdensome. And he wrote this poem in a way that people could really feel it like a lightness and a, and like a, uh, moves quickly, right? Uh, a really like light, beautiful feeling to accepting 613 commandments, which can feel very heavy and awe-inspiring, which is something that we want to think of. Um, we're going to look at um, some of the positive, um, positive commandments. Um, just to note, some of the people asked about some of the countings and some of the problems that people had. Um, so here when he says, right, so first of all, you can see that these two things have absolutely nothing to do with each other. It rhymes and it sounds great, but when you think about it, you're like, did he put these together? Because, right, they really have nothing to do with each other, right? Working a Canaanite slave um, and doing a Brit Milah. No connection. Um, this idea of working the Canaanite um, slave uh, is a machloket in the Talmud of whether it's something that like it's a mitzvah to do it um, so that you don't have right Jewish slaves um, or um, it, or is it like permission but not a mitzvah so this is an example of where he decided to count this and include it in here um, even though it's a uh, right a um, the English is a mitzvah to say Yes, exactly. That's the basis. If you look on the bottom, right? There's a machlokin in the Gemara about whether it's a mitzvah or a reshut. So sort of there's a, there's a tension around that. Um, if people get this volume, I highly recommend it because in both the Hebrew and English side, um, it shows you the sources. The Sefer HaFinuk was written much later, um, but it was modeled after the Rambam, um, right? Not the Bahag. Um, so people can, it's sort of more, um, right? it's a and give some of the background, the sources and the background um, and why we do many of the mitzvot. Okay. Um, here's another um, 
um, example where he puts a number of, uh, of different items together. Um, I just want to notice on the bottom, if you look at lines um, 60 um, and 61, um, right, where he says on, on 61, when he starts the new words, right, but, um, he says, like, you should have a student who you can teach and delight and give pleasure to, but it makes the idea of like transmitting the Torah and teaching the Torah something beautiful, something that we delight in, something that you enjoy doing, right? Not only to our children, um, but to students as well. Um, um, and that you should have a student, um, right? That you feel like that's your student, that you love that student and you love learning and teaching that student. Um, so it's not a dry listing, not only in the poetic form, Bill just tries, he tries to evoke certain emotions, a certain, um, or, you know, build a picture um, with some of the mitzvah. Um, here's another beautiful play on words, which we have to look at two together. It goes to the next page. Um, so if you look at line 81, Shemor ve'emor ha'ach, Shemor ve'emor ha'ach, ve'emor ha'ach, so he actually uses the same word, but it has different meanings in all three contexts. Um, rejoice with cries when you say, so happy, right? It's like an onomatopoeia, right? Somebody says, should say, be, rejoice and say, when, right? This is the mitzvah of, right? When somebody is, starts to slip, um, right, they're falling through the cracks, they're, they're not able to support themselves, you lift them up and write, um, and then totally another area of halakha, and also on the hearth, you should burn the leftover sacrifices, get burned every night <laughs> till the next day. So, um, right, the same exact word, meaning three different things in these three parts of the stanza. Um, and then um, is how he ends it, right? So really very, very playful um, and very evocative um, in how he uses his poetry. What is the Hanotar Ba'ach? What is the Ach there? The, the fire. Ba'ach is the hearth. Okay. Um, and clearly probably not the most used word, but he used that word here for the, right, for the rhyme scheme. Um, ah, so here's an example of something that the Bahag lists as a mitzvah that we know is not a biblical commandment. And the Rambam would not list this in his positive, right, biblical commandments. It's a rabbinic commandment or a chovah, something we must do is lighting Shabbat candles. We light Shabbat candles so that we can enjoy Shabbat, or next Shabbat. And so that when somebody comes home, they don't eat in the dark and have a peaceful Shalom Bayit Shabbat meal. But that's not necessarily a biblical commandment. So the Zohar Akiah discusses it at length, doesn't include this in the listing, um, but explains it, um, right? But again, different things, different, right? V'ha Omer l'nahel, v'ner Shabbat yahel, u'parshat hakel v'shoptin im shoterin. So it's not only that the last letter rhymes, but right, that you lift up the Omer, 
you light up the Shabbat candle, you say Hakel, we're getting these sounds, right? Nahel, Yahel, Hakel, um, right? Which are three totally disconnected, completely different mitzvot um, put together. And when you're reading it, it like rolls off the tongue and you cover each one. And your mind is sort of free to make the connections between them, either linguistically um, or just try to make connections. Um, and then appointing judges, right? Um, which again has right, very disconnected. Right? So we see for the most part, a lot of them are disconnected. Um, some, um, some are grouped together. Um, this is the, the, towards the end of the positive commandments, um, where again, he plays on the word Zohar and Azharot. Um, so, um, and he does this play on words of like the beginning of the Shemali Vimana was setting the scene, the first sort of 20 lines of the amazing moment of revelation. And he like jumps into this poem very quickly, goes through the 248 positive commandments, some of them only taking up three words right? Three words, next commandment. Three words, next commandment, right? It's amazing to capture a whole mitzvah in three words in such a beautiful poetic way and rhyme it with everything around it and then move on. And then at the end, he closes it off the positive commandment um, and says, right, you should be um, diligent um, and those, right, um, who, right, um, who are arrogant, right, um, should be gone. And Hamas here, yes, here, one who wars, warns others will shine. Meaning if you be a person, you spread this, right? We're, we're singing it now in Shavuot. If you're that type of person that you remind people, Hamas here, you're one of those people. Yes, here, you're going to shine, right? Just such a like exquisite, two different meanings play on words here. And how are you going to shine? Like the Zohar, right? The brilliance of the luminaries. Um, so extremely, extremely evocative language. Um, so that's the um, some of the positive commandments. Um, I see a question, was he intended to be a halachic guide? No. I think that's very clear. That's very clear that he's not, a, he's, I don't think he's putting himself forward as a, that you learn this as a halacha guide on the one hand. Um, on the other hand, um, he clearly has a love for the Torah a love for the mitzvot, um, and um, a brilliance of how to share this um, with others, right? So it's clear that he wants this to be something that um, people can feel connected to it. Um, and I think one of the most beautiful things about the Azharot, um, we're going to look at a few negative commandments, is that it sounds beautiful, right? Any person can sort of pick it up. He also had a love for the Hebrew language, and you can see that. Um, this was a period of time where the poets of Muslim Spain um, were trying to have a resurgence of the beauty, right? There was Arabic poetry all around them, and they were trying to model themselves after the Arabic poetry. And they wanted Hebrew um, to be like that. So since the time of the Tehillim, the Psalms, there had not been poems that were so like both thoughtful and like um, religiously and spiritually connected to God, but also so beautifully constructed. Um, and so Gabriel really tried to put all of that together. Yeah, so he really wanted to show how mass, like how much there was in the Hebrew language. I mean, I think that's why we see words in there that we're not so familiar with, 
Um, and I think that's why modern, right, Israeli, they look back to Gabi Roll in the golden age of Spain um, to look at like, what is the Hebrew language possible of? But he's not trying to teach you halacha, right? That's the job of, right, of Sa'adiagon was, uh, the Rambam was, um, but he clearly is trying to evoke a certain religious sensibility in people. Um, but he puts enough in there that it's not only for the lay person. You see um, how many connections, um, I only put even just a few, um, but he puts so many connections to biblical references, um, as you saw, right? Right, the Chayafiba Gemach. He puts in there um, lots of connections to rabbinic ideas, um, like for the Tihini, for wearing Tihini, he says, you should um, like beautify yourself or wear it like jewelry. Right? And we know that the rabbis think of um, Tihini as Pe'er, it's what's beautiful. That's why mourners don't wear, right? In the beginning, they don't wear tefillin, um, right? So he he weaves in um, so many of these ideas that people who know Tanakh very well and people who know Chazal very well can find um, can find those ideas in there. Um, we're going to look at just a few of the negative commandments. I'm sorry. It's really one of the things I saw. Yeah. You know, he'll use the language Yakar Mipininim. So yeah. you think of Tehillim. There's so many. Yes. So many references to uh, you know tehillim and to prayer that we already know yes. and it's uh you know it's very it's very three-dimensional yes and i think each time you read it i think that's why i appreciate so much the annotated versions um i'm not somebody who knows right torah by heart um i think people who know torah like a lot better will find a lot more in there um but a lot of the annotated versions will then say like this is where he's getting this from or even his other religious poetry and even some of his secular poetry, um, people have made annotated versions and how much link, how much he's putting. And it's sort of almost a jumping off point because he's referencing it, but then also like trying to do something new with it um, in some sense, right? He wants to take you somewhere with it. Um, so there's a lot of layers to it. So we're gonna just look um, at the, I'm gonna just get some of the negative commandments. Um, there's a different tune um, for the negative commandments. It's only slightly different. Um, um, so one example of him um, evoking Torah language, but also the ideas of the Chazal, where he says, Lo tochal al hadam, don't eat before the blood. Um, my daily sacrifice is sprinkled. So that's like the basic idea in the Torah. But as you see in the notes below, right, there's many rabbinic ideas learned out of, out of the idea of not like right? You can't eat before praying, you can't deliver um, judgment, um, right? Um, so there's a lot of different laws um, learned from that. Um, right, here's another example of, uh, of the negative um, some of the negative commandments. Ah, so this is a fun riddle. So he's having fun with this. Um, sorry again for the, for the um, but he talks about, um, there are four, right? Right, so there's a little riddle, which when, right? It's not such a like, not such a like, 
fun thing to read about when you're like, oh, these women cannot marry. By Kohen here, it means the Kohen Gadol, right? So um, right, um, there's a little bit of a riddle here, um, right? Four categories of women are forbid forbidden to the high priest, right? A zona, a grusha, right? Uh, a zona, whatever that means, a divorcee, um, right? Somebody, um, and uh, so, right, and one, uh, and a regular Kohen can marry um, an almana, a widow. Right, but not the other ones. Um, he also, this is a one where he put in the right, so there's positive and negative, right? There's positive commandments for the Kohen Gadol, who he can marry, which he put in the positive commandments. And now in the negative commandments, he's discussing it again, right? But I just think this riddle of like is really, really very like sort of makes you smile, but also like helps you remember it. Um, and then this is towards the very end. Um, of the negative um, commandments, right? Where he closes up this idea, um, right? right? Um, so he tries to really evoke again um, this, this nation um, that maybe right, we're not so many people, um, right? We're few in number. Um, and, you know, he goes to like a redemptive sort of place um, towards the end. Um, I know I only just shared a very little bit um, of, we just got like a little bit of a taste um, of, first of all, of the significance of this practice. Um, I would also be maybe very interested in other melodies. Um, the melody that I shared is the melody of the Syrian community. Um, I think even with the Syrian community, I've most heard it. Um, my um, mom's family, my grandfather here is Shami from Damascus. And that's the community I think that has really kept it very much, um, you know, as a home-based practice. Um, but there are probably other, it is a widespread custom. Um, thank you. Um, it's very simple, yeah, the positive and negative. Yeah, negative like goes down a little bit. Um, but yeah. Um, so if people have customs, I'm, I'm, you know, would love to hear more if people have, um, have that experience. Um, but I know we got, as preparing for Shavuot, um, in sharing the Asura with you. Um, and uh, I think there's something really, um, why were these so popular? Right? What, what drew them into the hearts of the regular people? Um, and what, like, what is it that, um, right, that people saw in them? So I think part of it is the tune. I'll sing the beginning part again, because I think people just asked to hear that again, just to hear the regular tune. Uh, I don't have the best voice. Yeah. Um, just so people can hear the tune. So part of it is like singing something together as a community, a communal experience. Um, so, Shemor li li ma'ane heyabim od me'ena hiraha el umene devarav haisharim tehu yislach ashema tehu yagde osma tehu yiten chokma so you'll see So that's the tune. And imagine we would go around um, you know, as a family, and everybody would take a part um, and we would all sing it together. Um, customs 
um, customs such as this, you know, which maybe um, originally was a synagogue custom, we saw the custom, the, the Gaona custom that they started doing in Musaf, um, but that it's so well loved that people, whether they did in the synagogue, um, whether they did in the home, it's a custom that lasted. Um, part of it is the beauty of gathering together and sharing the Torah. Um, you know, that Matan Torah is not a, is not a, a one-time, uh, one-time thing, but it's something that, um, that we love the Torah, that we want to share it with our families, we want to share it with our friends, neighbors might join, other community members might join, um, and it really, um, it really evokes a feeling of what Shavuot is all about, right, that this is a gift that we were given, and it's something that we appreciate, and we love it so much, and we want to explore it, and we want to sing about it, and we want to, like, sing about it in rhyme, um, and we want to teach it to our children, and we want our children to learn the tune and learn the rhyme, so that then they'll share it with their children, and, and to me, the Azharot really, um, more than listening to the Azharot has learned shul, which, yes, there's an awesome feeling, um, but this really gives us a sense of what does it mean um, to accept the Torah, and to pass on the Torah in such a loving and beautiful way. Um, so I'm, I'm so grateful to have this opportunity to share this custom um, with you. Um, and hopefully it's a custom that if you're not familiar with, um, you know, that you can um, be aware of and maybe, and maybe share in the future. Um, wishing everybody a very sweet um, Shavuot um, as we uh, accept the Torah once again.